Satisha, thank you for joining us from Boston, USA. And good evening to audience in India and welcome to the Satish Jha Show. I'm your host, Professor Rupinder Obroy, in conversation with Mr. Satish Jha. Well, I do assume that many of you are regular viewers of the show because this beams out every night at 9 p.m. where some of the important top trending topics and issues of concern are analyzed by Mr. Satish Jha to help us do, to, do away with cacophony and clatter, which unfortunately has become the format of primetime news. As citizens, we often feel puzzled and perplexed as the boundaries between the truth and the fake news intermingle almost seamlessly. Indeed, we live in post-truth and post-fact uh, era. The feeling of confusion resonates amongst all of us as we frequently are left wanting to understand, decode, decipher significant global and national issues in a more sensible, logical, and rational manner. So what we are basically attempting in this particular show is to deep dive into issues, slice open some critical and prominent themes with the objective to generate and indulge in coherent, clear, and comprehensible conversation in a more relaxed manner. We underpin the issue with some background empirical research and contextualize the topic. And today, we aim to crack open the topic of ascendancy of social media and the future of political communication and implications in the contemporary times, as it has become a powerful political tool in campaigning, agenda setting, and governing. Of course, the, uh, the trigger to this conversation on this particular topic came with post Elon Musk's interest in Twitter. But to be more honest, this topic has been igniting and intriguing all players and stakeholders alike from politicians, social influencers, business hunters, academicians, and students. Nearly 4.62 billion people around the world use social media. That is around 58.4% of the world population. The daily average usage time spent is around two and a half to three hours. These stats itself illustrates that it is a topic of immense importance. Just as the age of print media gave way to age of television, the age of television gave way to the age of Twitter. And here, I'm reminded of 1985 book titled Amusing Ourselves to Death, where the author argues that the medium of television substantially undermined the quality and the worth of serious political discourse. Originally, this view seemed very reductionist, but today it seems more real as we are experiencing big paradigm shift in the dominant mode of political communication and canvassing. So let's jump right in with Mr. Satish to get his views on this topic. And my first question to you, Mr. Cha, would be, do you agree that the social media has become an indispensable medium, particularly in the context of political communication. And I think it is important to hear this out from you because you yourself, as a founder of Jansata, have traveled this journey from print media to online beaming of your show. Over to you, Satish. Uh, well, thank you very much and uh, good evening to all. I would like to say that the way you have uh, posed the question, I think every time a technology comes into play, it expands the universe of people who can participate and thereby dilutes the kind of uh, seriousness of conversation that was the preserve of a few before that technology. 
So every technology has expanded the universe of people who join in. Like you said, 60% about that people today are engaged with social media. Let's go back to the times of the newspaper. At the time of newspaper predominance and before the social media comes into play, every single subject that came into discourse was edited by someone. And it was given by those who, who just were paid to do that part of the job. The job was to report, the job was to think, the, the job was to write editorial, the job was to figure out which particular issue comes in. Now, as technology expanded, first we brought in television, for instance. Television reached many more people at the same time, which newspapers couldn't reach. Now, that will create a different kind of discourse, but it had constraints of its own kind. You cannot go on reading uh, television like you read the newspaper. You have to watch it. You can read it. So that will bring in new kind of uh, uh, attributes or dimensions to the way we understand and respond. And we have seen the whole range of uh, questions about that in the past 50, 60, 70 years. We move from there to social media. What it's doing is democratize the whole thing. Now, I can write. Nobody's editing me. So obviously, the discourse will change. So I think as we expand uh, the possibilities of technology to include, which also means we are looking for the lowest common denominator from the highest common factor to the lowest common denominator, that's what the journey is like. I don't know if it answers your question, but that's the way I see this progress. When technology is used for democratization, that's what's going to happen. Uh, definitely, it does answer my question because you're talking about the intervention of technology and how it has democratized the whole space. You know, we all agree that more and more political leaders have been attempting to appropriate the social media to achieve political ends by pushing the boundaries of the discursive actions to extreme. And I'm not suggesting that all content on social media or on Twitter is inconsequential. Much of the Twitter sphere is relatively innocuous. But the danger arises when it destroys the dialogue and demolishes deliberation, fosters farce and fabrication, and contributes to callousness and content. Twitter, I believe structurally with its very limited character, this allows the thoughtful and deep uh, conversation to occur. What is your take uh, on this Twitter? What is the dominant flavor on Twitter according to you? Because you yourself are very active on Twitter, I suppose. You know, I think it's just from the most rotten to most profound. It's a whole range, and there's a reason for that. Think of how we talk. When we talk, we talk in sentences. We talk in small, small sentences, small talk, or conversations doesn't take place as an academic, well-thought-out, structured sentence. It happens in bits and pieces. So Twitter gave a possibility of someone who has only one sentence to speak. Now that one sentence becomes meaningful for that person, and it, if it resonates with people, Obviously, it starts a dialogue. But the question of selection of what's relevant, what's not, and that, that's another question. In that selection, you will find that uh, the world has lost a lot of control over it. It's become so democratic that we don't know what's important, what's not important. What's important to someone, if it becomes uh, suddenly viral, as they call it now, uh, when, well, that can set the agenda of discourse. But good thing is, if next thing where it becomes viral, well, it will not be really important. So lots of virality without any significance in the long term. What's viral is immediate response. But will it become a significant political or, or, or policy or 
strategic subject to talk about. That's another matter altogether. So in other words, what's happening here is that the room for the mundane and the profound, that, that whole map has changed. So it's not the profound takes primacy over the mundane. Sometimes mundane is what basically drives the whole conversation. At the same time, if you find some of the finest minds, Noam Chomsky also writes on Twitter. And whatever we may say, Chomsky has been for several generations a towering intellectual figure. You may agree or disagree with him. He's on a certain uh, side of the political divide or rather divide of discourse. So if Chomsky uses Twitter, it's a very powerful tool from that point of view. But Chomsky may not find more than a few thousand followers, maybe 100. But there are people like Trump who have 80 million. Of course, he's off the Twitter. But there are people of, of certain kind of 100 million uh, you know, followers. Now, uh, the fake and other, those are different concerns. They don't concern me right now. But the fact is, if the participant in the conversation is fake, that's a problem. If the follower is fake, that's less of a problem. So a new paradigm is emerging, and we've got to look at multiple questions as we go along. But I don't know if this again answers the question or not, but this is where I am. Well, thank you, Sufiq. I think I was stopped by the sentence which you used and which sort of sums up the whole uh, platform called Twitter is the rule from mundane to profound. I think it's the whole spectrum is very interesting. And when you are indulging with in the sphere, you get to see very trivial tweets and also very profound one. And you mentioned Noam Chomsky in, uh, in the course of your answer. Uh, and also I believe that currently the scale, the scope and the impact of the political communication has, uh, as you, you rightly said, uh, you know, reduced to the game of attention hacking or recklessness of the material being posted and the kind of uh, you know shockability of the content which is being manufactured uh, you know these algorithms feed further into political polarization divisions and factionalism research shows that 73% of the political content on twitter comes from less than 10% of the active twitter users so there's always a possibility of distortion of the truth as you yourself mentioned so extending this conversation further, so would you say, Satish, that it is essential to interrogate the power and the possibilities of the new social media mates in creating and disseminating this public information? Does the space need more regulation? And how do you actually pin the accountability and transparency of this free fall or sphere? Uh, one thing is very important. Regulation normally associated with the government. If the state comes into regulating this, then there is a huge problem because the state wants to control it and doesn't want this whole power of democratization to go to people. The point is it should be controlled socially. In the US, most institutions of control on wherever the regulation is not only by the government, belongs to the sphere of the people. Now, it's not very effective, but it's effective enough for them to deter anything rotten happening in the public space. So peer pressure is a great regulator in that sense. But when the state gets into it, now in the US, the state hands are tied down by the mandate of the constitution. And they are serious, but it's basically because it's community or society created by lawyers, constitution downwards or onwards. It's been the lawyers who are predominantly there. So when all kinds of lawyers keep fighting, that means the battle is elevated to the layer of those who have been trained to have that discourse. 
in developing societies, the discourse happens among those who can take a trident or who take a sword and who can just go on campaigning and, and illiterate and the semi-literate. That's where the danger is. So you find that even though January 6 happened in the US and a lot of it was happening on Twitter, social media, that violence, quotient of violence was minimal compared to what could happen anywhere else. Just imagine the same situation had it happened in India, what would have been the possibility of violence or how it had been expressed. So that society, how mature the society is, that will decide how you're going to look at that. The regulation, is it self-regulation? Is social regulation? Is it state mandated? The state is, at least the developing countries paradigm tells us, the state gives some arms of development and some possibilities of faith in it, but basically is captured by people who are self-centered, who basically belong to various groups and they appropriate the, the public space as much as they can. And in India, it uh, probably has taken in the 75 years a, a space today, which was unthinkable. The state will become so powerful and the political party can control the state the way it is doing today was unthinkable from the constitutionalist point of view. Anyway, so, so these things will keep happening. There's no way of controlling them. It depends on how evolved our citizenry is. Citizenry and citizenry doesn't evolve because education alone. It evolves because of lots of um, challenges that we face as citizens ourselves. So in American society, think I find one data very, very important in American society. The cash available to a family at any point in time is 90% have less than $1,000 in cash available to them. Just imagine, which restricts their ability to really be free to say anything because they're always constantly looking at job one, job two, job three in a day. They're busy living their lives. So 10%, that becomes more engaged. And, and how you have to see how each society basically gets into a conversation. So I would say here, uh, the regulation will be depending, that, that will decide how uh, educated, how uh, cultivated, how ready, how evolved we are in a democracy that will set the regulation. There is no, no, no issue of these things in China or Russia as much because this is all regulated anyway. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad, Satish, that you mentioned January 6th, Evan, because my next question leads to that, um, uh, straight to the American politics you now. So uh, we know that the indomitable political role of social media in the American politics uh, clearly was established in 2008 presidential elections. And uh, Barack Obama's social media strategy sort of revolutionized the political campaigning by taking on the characteristics of social movement with strong digital grassroots mobilization. Then Trump, of course, used it to the hilt in 2016. And today, social media is used to make personalized appeals to voters, aided by data analytics that guides the targeted micro-messaging, which is being used extensively to persuade voters. So how do you comprehend and foresee the technology-mediated targeting messages and the conversation with citizens? And how has it altered the public sphere to use the Habermasian term here? I think if even more, more interesting case study of how it's being done was the election of 2014 in India. In the case of um, American election of Barakwa in 2008, or seven, eight that happened. At least both parties were quite almost closely engaged. You can say it's 19 and 20. You can say it is 18 and 21, but you can't say it's five and 25. 
But in an Indian case, it was almost like 100 and almost done. That was a very deliberate, well thought out strategy to use social media and not just during election. It began several years before that. And they created a kind of discourse which was all around a false narrative which couldn't be, couldn't be verified, which people could easily buy into and very carefully done. It was not some, something which was happening randomly and or uh, spontaneously. It was very well thought out strategy. This is what people can believe in. And build a, around that, you build a narrative that makes a person, a leader, a party most relevant. Others are not even engaging. So it became one-sided. In the US case, it was Barack Obama gave it, but very quickly other party also became as savvy. Ultimately, it's one society. That society is equally divided. They're equally technology savvy. The question is, who is more strategically using it? And that can, that can always be the case. Who is a better user of that strategy? So therefore, there is a battle of equals. Here it became a battle of a strategic driver and somebody is even unwilling to even try it. Now that's that's what tilted the whole balance in some ways. So my, my point is that uh, in terms of using it uh, strategically, it all depends. Uh, possibilities are all over the map. Who is going to use it well is the question. And it's not just social media that decide. It's only one actor in the process. If you say social media is everything, that's not the case. It's true that targeting, micro-targeting, it was happening earlier as well. It was happening in a very subliminal messaging, uh, but the way leaders talk, they know how to, when you go to uh, a state of um, say Bihar, Bihar is the greatest state of, I've come to the state of Bihar, or come to the greatest state of Missouri. Now Missouri is a poorer state. What is great about it? But you will always say that because your messaging, that is what political messaging is all about. Now, instead of using microphone or other speaker, et cetera, you can take a Twitter because everybody who is using a phone, as you see, 60% people have smartphones and they are using social media. The social media is because not because of computers and desktops and laptops and tablets, it's because of the, uh, you can say, ubiquity of cell phones. Cell phones combined with social media have been made it possible. Without cell phone, this won't be able to um, be a possibility even. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Sutish, I think I was, uh, that was very interesting because you believe that Modi used, uh, you know, social media more effectively as compared to Obama, and also the local messaging was always there. You gave the example of Bihar, that only the platform probably has changed. So uh, uh, just let's dig deeper into this aspect and uh, talk about modification, if you, I can use that word, and Trumpism or Twitterization of the political communication. We know that Trump was a prolific user of the site and very potent narrator chief on Twitter, reaching out to nearly 89 million followers at the time when his account was suspended. He astutely engaged in what is also termed as rule by tweet and built on this passionate base of loyalists through consistent narrative that reflected their grievances. He mocked the rivals uh, in an unhinged manner, I would say, that meant messaging almost, his messages almost instantaneously jumped from Twitter to a larger audience of television. So what do you say tweets today determine the prime time news? Or, or has, you know, to put it differently, has Twitter sphere reversed the flow of information to the citizens and the public in general? Well, 
Trump was uh, very strategic about a lot of things. Don't forget that he is a, I would still consider him one of the smartest uh, public space person there has been. I will not give him even 10% um, marks on ethics, probably he'll earn my negative marks, but on understanding how things work for immediate gain, he probably is uh, on a scale of 100, close to 100. So what he did was when he came to Twitter before elections, he didn't have any following. He hardly had a few thousand people, but he converted that very quickly into major following. And don't forget in the US system, 330 million population, about 230 million uh, people who are actually adults in the sense of being able to vote. Of that, the Republicans and Democrats are split about in the middle and say 100 million odd will be Democrats, 100 million odd will be Republicans. And he began controlling entire Republican base plus some. Now, nobody, no senator, no congressman, nobody goes beyond a million, two million, three million, five million. This man is there 90 million. Barack Obama very early on, 2008, 9, 10, he was already 100 million. Barack Obama was the only person who went beyond the people of entertainment industry. Earlier on, the biggest followers were, largest followers for, were for singers or people from entertainment media. But Barack Obama is a politician who had, who is the only one who has 120 million people following him, something of that order. So the reason is that Barack Obama was not only followed within the US, he captured the global audience as well. In the case of Modi, uh, I don't quite know, but he's, he's also around 80 million. So in a country which is three times the size of America. So in that sense, he's not that effective, but the one who has such followers is more powerful than any media. His voice reaches beyond, CNN gets a 12 million viewers at any point in time. Fox gets what, how much? 13, 14 million. No one has more than 13, 14 million viewers at any point in time, but anyone who has 110 million people following, you say, and they know it. And it was very important for Twitter to, uh, suspend and ban him forever because he was the most poisonous uh, uh, player in the whole political space. So when people become poisonous, there should be some barriers. It's almost like saying uh, somebody has diabetes and there is a limit to that. If you go beyond a certain level, you've got to be given medicine, take out. So these are as poisonous as that, these people. And we got to figure out what is the poison level that we can tolerate in society. If not, introduce a doctor, we should have political doctors, and we should have an open discourse about it. One person doesn't decide. It's a board of doctors decide. This poisonous, get rid of it. So yeah. that kind of conversation has to happen now. Yeah, and that was very interesting because you talk, give an analogy of a doctor and a patient uh, in your understanding of the social media space. Uh, so as we understand it, almost uh, sort of agree that the standard communication practices have been offended by the use of Twitter that leads to larger amplification, the figures were just provided by you. And of course, the heightened polarization, which is kind of a subset to the amplification of voices of so-called poisonous people, as you just referred to. So my next question would be then, who controls, consumes, and distributes information is largely then determined by who is able to navigate through this digital technology and manufacture the content. Coming to the electoral politics then, do you think that the successful political leaders have to be digital young spinners? Well, it's like this. Storytellers, which, which yeah. clicks to the masses, you know, in that sense, yes. 
the point is this, to run a great restaurant, I don't have to be a chef. To be a great politician, I don't have to say anything. I'm a good manager, right? If I'm a semi-literate Narendra Modi, I will hire a semi-literate Prashant Kishore, but who knows exactly what he's doing, and he's very, very good at what he does. I'll hire him. I don't need that capacity. He will, he will get 300 IIT boys to do the job. So the point is, a businessman doesn't have to be a Harvard graduate. So the leaders are beyond, they can't be schooled. Narendra Modi's leadership is phenomenal. He is probably one of the greatest communicators in the country. So he doesn't, he didn't become so by going to Harvard. He became so because he had the passion. I think the resolute and the brave, they are the ones who win the race. You don't need education. You don't need anything. But if you have a resolve to go somewhere, you can, and you're strategic as in mind, you can achieve anything you feel like doing. So I think I'm not going to overrate education from political point of view, because political discourse is about lowest common denominator. What Narendra Modi can do, I cannot do. That's not my skill. That's not. If I had chosen before I got educated, probably I could do that. My education came in the way of my ability to do a number of things. And, and this is something we have to recognize because everything we learn makes us a different human being. But he, was, he had a resolve early on. He moved in a certain direction. And he clearly, communication with masses, he gets 100 plus points hands down. There's no question about it. So we, we respect the fact that he developed a talent. But when it comes to hiring people, a political party, which is savvy, they will hire the right person who can do the job. Now, if you can find someone like Prashant Kishore, because Prashant Kishore is a unique, when I first met him in 2011, I can never forget something he said. And he said, I, sir, I don't meet people who want to meet me. I knew this guy would go somewhere. I told people he doesn't want to go anywhere. So he was very resolute about it. So people who are resolute, people who are savvy with politics, they will win. A politician doesn't have to know that. He has to know how to use them. So basically, uh, Sufish, uh, we both agree on the fact that every communication medium uh, trains our you know, consciousness too. Uh, and we are sort of, there's a sense of fatigue and uh, towards the banality of social media platform. And it is said that the virtual uh, you know, media ecology has its physical, psychological, social structures and characteristics that shapes how users of this medium consume and process information and make sense of the world. Uh, uh, on another hand, I would say research shows that we live in eco chambers, blocking any dissenting voices and follow blindly almost like-minded people. So do you think Twitter ultimately leads to devalue the other? The othering becomes more noticeable and obvious, thereby cultivating mean and malicious discourse. How do you see it play, it play out uh, in the context of the Indian political landscape, are we pushing ourselves to the edge uh, of very fragile social fabric as such because of our inherent diversities? If you see that there, there's a division within the social media, I think Twitter still remains a more open space where if somebody says something very outlandish or far out, there'll be criticism. You can ban them, you can you know, uh, mute them, whatever you do, but at least that conversation happens. But just take it to the WhatsApp space. That's a kind of closed group. So if something happens, there in fact the danger of a WhatsApp group person becoming a more fundamentalist, becoming more of an extremist is much greater than somebody in Twitter space. Twitter space actually allow vocalizers, but it reduces extremism. 
WhatsApp actually uh, nurtures and, and vindicates the fact that I believe in something. That danger of WhatsApp uh, kind of communication, that's much, much worse. While Instagram and other, they, they are basically addressing a different aspect of our hunger for knowing in a certain way. Something is visual, something is cryptic, something is reinforcing fake, something is looking at, if I say something, people can attack me for what I've said. And when people attack you, you begin to ask some questions. Either you have become defensive, but nonetheless, that it remains nagging in your mind somewhere. So that is a still healthier way of getting society to come to a, some kind of uh, negotiations taking place and, and people are constantly changing positions. Very often doesn't happen. Because if you, if I look at the way I see Twitter, people remain in the same space and same size. I don't easily change, but it doesn't become violent. It doesn't become extremist, which WhatsApp does. And I think uh, some of the people who are professors of social media and researchers, they should be studying how each unique one, which one is expanding, what is the impact of it. I'm telling you with, from my limited experience, but no one's experience is going to be good enough to understand how the space is being shaped. So I think I will need some more research here to find out how each of them has contributed to the discourse that we have in terms of uh, either consolidating uh, various views or basically seeing some movement across the views. Is there a negotiation or is it just basically self-indication all the time that drives it all? Yeah, thank you, Satish. Uh, so, you know, it was interesting that you talked about this kind of, uh, uh, you juxtapose in a way uh, WhatsApp and uh, Twitter and other social platforms and each would have its own niche and uh, way of for, you know, communication. Uh, so, but largely we agree that there is a commercialization, you know, visualization and professionalization of political communication because you yourself mentioned Prashant Kishore. Uh, so there are this novel industry which has come up. You know, the best example is Cambridge Analytica that use data mining and, you know, psychographic profiling to sway voters' opinions uh, regarding political issues. So do you foresee the role of professional election consultancies and political strategies like Prashant Kishore and Steve Bannon, for example, in America, of course, he's also in jail or somewhere, I'm not updated with that information. So how do you see this kind of industry of political consultants mediating and communicating for the leaders? Well, I would say that they've always existed. Let's go back to Third Reich, let's go to Germany. What they did at that point in time was far more targeted, far more well thought out, far more Orwellian, whatever you can think of, than anything that we are seeing today. Steve Bannon is no, um, you know, uh, what you call Goebbels, right? He is no, 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 nowhere in comparison to him because they had very well thought out strategy, which was 100 years before now, I mean, 90 years before now. So you can do that even when there is no technology. The question is that technology differential is what's important. Do I have more technology vis-a-vis -vis you? It doesn't matter what technology I have. So if everybody has something closer to that, the chances of dangers are a little less or risks are lower. But when the gap becomes high, that's when the challenge arises. In the Indian instance, I would say, one party deliberately chose not to get on the wagon of something which they could see easily is kind of going to overtake the conversation. So that, that created a huge difference. But the, when the difference is not too much and people are constantly looking at, uh, you know, recalibrating and negotiating, I think the challenge will be not of the same order as the Third Reich had. But when the gap becomes too much, when the state controls all and you have nothing, that is a very dangerous place to be. 
from there, then I look at, uh, um, I mean, you, uh, uh, how it's going to be used depends on who is, how, how much savvy in using something. And as far as the, the case of uh, political consultants, Prashant is not the first consultant there was. In fact, most of these advertising companies have been advising political parties for last 30 to 35 years that I have seen personally. As a matter of fact, when BJP tried to do that Ganesh drinking milk, it was designed by an advertising agency. They had designed that experiment to figure out how people respond. It was an experiment for them. And those who know, they know it. But people, so they said, well, wow, our people are so stupid, and then we can come to the government. And that's what they did. That means they will believe anything we throw at them, which, which our culture allows to be believable. And that's what WhatsApp did. In fact, I can. what shocked me is many people who have held positions of secretary of the government of India have been at the top level. They end up believing a kind of nonsense that India is the world's pharmacy. India is not even the top 10 producer of pharmacy. India is Vishwaguru. Now, Vishwaguru in a country of illiterates, and whatever we may be, our 90% people are semi-literate. Only at the most, we have six to seven percent crore people who can, who have graduate degrees, even they are not ready for a conversation. Barely about two to three crore people in the country can speak at the same level of, you can say, average that Europeans can or Americans. So in their own language, they can. But we still call ourselves Vishwaguru, or we said we will provide the whole world to nurses. And suddenly we became granary of the whole world. And the people at that level of experience of 30, 40, 50 years of leading the nation in their department, they began believing in it. Now that is the, that is the bigger danger, that people have suspended their thinking because someone, uh, they come to worship because of social media, says something. That is bigger danger. So you're talking about political consultants. They are creating those possibilities. These things are being done not because why one leader. They have advisors who advise them, say this and we'll play it like that. That's a bigger danger. And today you can do that. Right. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of what uh, Horbis once referred to as articulation and aggregation of public opinion in democracy is nothing more than numbered voices. Thus pointing to the you know, substitution of the individual opinion with concentration of viewpoints. Uh, usually expressed in the bipolarity of yes or no response format. So, you know, in that sense, deliberations on the public issues in a stoic sense, which you say is missing in the arena, whether the country is, you know, semi-literate or literate or fully uh, illiterate, that may depend uh, in that uh, configuration. But uh, the whole process of deliberation of the public issues in very stoic sense within the public sphere is put off. Uh, as citizens are called upon to express their agreement or disagreement within the pre-arranged uh, you know, pre choices. So uh, uh, do you think, uh, Satish, that the binary and the reductionist stance on issues undermines the detailed deliberation which we're talking about, and which has to be the backbone of informed and enlightened democracy? I think it follows from the earlier question you had. If you have political consultancies and ad companies, they're trying to drive this narrative or, or discourse. What they do is uh, asking someone a yes or no question is almost like waylaying somebody who is on the way to something 
understanding something or achieving something and you get waylaid in the process of being yes or no question once i answer one yes or no question my desire to go and further understand that it becomes kind of uh, muted or at least diminishes so it just changes the conversation please understand these are being done by the number of ad agencies that this country has and they are supporting each other whether it's piyush pandey this side whether uh, tarun that side so they are the ones giving the discourse a new flavor and they drive it in some ways by throwing these things to the people who are always curious about something or the other i mean if you look at 30 40 years of discourse from when there was no television your black television era all we gave them was films and films kept people glued to the television that's one then came the color television now you got sports and many other things and then suddenly there were 600 channels if you see what they do as a matter of fact we forget we only look at the national tv but when you start looking at 600 channels and they are kind of stuff they are propagating all around you trying to aggregate that what will you get i mean it becomes a whole range of subjects that come we won't be able to make sense out of it but aggregation that you're talking about it, the number stuff you're talking about it is important from the point of view of someone who has a mission but society doesn't think like that someone who wants to get something out of it he is thinking like that and driving it so all those things are happening from the point of view of those who want to see an opportunity i look at politic politicians as entrepreneurs of people space they can take a discourse from any anywhere to anywhere depending on what suits them what they think and that decides quality of politician when you have a politician of the quality of gandhi or nehru you get a different discourse because they were very educated they could not come down to the level so no matter what they did that their conversations were always at the level they didn't go below the lower middle class level but they were leaders so they knew how to communicate as well and they gave them something they could deal with charkha we gave them a charkha and the whole world is engaged with charkha and you have bigger discourse elsewhere so gandhi was able to you know without people seeing how he segregated the discourse create a very segregated discourse mm-hmm. something and he fi- figured out look at simple things like satya ahinsa yeah. charkha he he had symbolism of very concrete kind value based kind mm-hmm. what is symbolism today it is about division and you can do that you can do this or you can do that depending on the quality of the leader when leader comes from education and quality of gandhi or nehru or of even before them many of them i don't have to talk about all the names it will be a different level some leaders had only one agenda freedom but some leader like gandhi some people had a different agenda like uh, satyapratha and reformist movements and so on and so forth so you can take from any point of view and what has happened is just like you know we had a bicycle at one time we walked at one time we had a bell we came to ghora finally we reached by, by, bicycle and motorcycle now we have cars in the country similarly technology has not only enabled us from walking one one way to another it's also enables from talking one way to another the social space is about talking how do we talk about things how do you have a conversation so i would look at just like technology evolved in matter of walking from our two legs to all the way to car or whatever we have in planes similarly in the case of Uh, conversations is gone from tamar patra to some whatever from uh, you know some kind of paper from trees to paper so technology has been shaping in some ways facilitating that conversation or facilitating our ability to do things 
What is technology? Technology primarily is a social construct where we, we uh, use things in a way that helps us do something differently. When you do something differently, now people get engaged. Those who get engaged, they benefit from it. So it's a, you have to see technology, how it's impacting our polity, society, our psychology, our uh, conversations, our ambitions, aspirations. So, and how, who's creating technology? There is nobody sitting down creating it. It's one of us thinks of this is something we should do, moves in that direction, a thousand move in that direction, one succeed. When they succeed, we start using it. Like for instance, iPhone, cell phone. It wasn't created in India just because India has three times more people, created by people who imagine how conversation can take place. They enjoy that and something comes out of it. So whether technology is always good, I think it's, it's something is available to us for good and bad at the same time. And so is this, this conversation about social space. Technology driven. It doesn't exist without technological base of cell phone and computers. So it's only a post cell phone computer technology, I mean, space as such. It, it cannot happen if there was no America, it won't be happening. It still will be in non tam 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 prapatra. So uh, coming on to my final question now, uh, which is a larger meta and a, a bigger question in the sense that. Uh, to, to get your thoughts on that, Satish. Uh, so uh, can we say that we are living in the age of agnostic pluralism that is based on the impossibility of true plurality within the modern or the postmodern deliberative democracy? Uh, as you know, agnostic pluralism inherently leads to, uh, you know, this kind of a vibrant clash of democratic political position guided by undecidability and diversity. So how do you this scenario, see the scenario play itself out politically, socially, and culturally? Tough question. I mean, there could be, how would it play out depends on so many factors we can't really say, but one, it's a question of hope and faith. My hope is it falls on the right side. My faith is that things will sort themselves out. In, the, in between what happens, that's what real life is about. That's where the danger is. Right, and that's where I'm really worried about. So what's happening in between, that's a problem. In the long run, we're all dead, like somebody said. But right now the question is, how the shaping up will depend on how responsible people who are engaging with it are going to be. I would say, if any move that I make is going to hurt any section of society in whichever way, I should refrain from that. But when politician decides for my victory, I'm willing to sacrifice a, a million people. Now that's a very different kind of conversation that Mao had, that Lenin had, or Stalin had, or Hitler had. And what when some uh, saffron guy goes to some religious congregation and says, I will not be uh, secure or I won't feel safe as long as one member of one community remains in my country or we need genocide. Now that is a conversation we don't want to have because that will, keep coloring the whole thing. And instead of going in the direction of good, it will drive us into a conflict, which is not really required. I think if we all agree, our goal is this, we are a nation, great nation, and we, we value these things, whatever the values are. In our case, we or whatever we think is right. Those values drive the conversation that direction. When it goes anywhere away, just bring it back from there. And that is responsible leadership. Because there are some instincts in each one of us. It's jingoism, for instance. 
immediately responding to baser instincts. Now, if you are going to play on that, it will be a different world. But if you're going to play on things which are uh, which a great leader will do, a great leader will think of how where do we go 50 years from now? A, a, not such a great leader, but ability to charismatic leader can drive us into a ditch. And that's what the question is going to be. Uh, thank you, Satish. This was my last question. Thank you very much for this very engaging and amazing conversation. I absolutely relished it, and I believe our audience did the same. So for the next time, uh, we deep dive into different questions. Some important theme will be picked up with Mr. Satisha. And until then, keep dazzling and engaging in new ideas. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.